Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. It is well known that regional and rural Australians face greater health and mental health burdens at the same time as lower levels of service access. Dispersed populations and lower levels of research infrastructure are barriers to rural and regionally based academic psychiatrists. Nevertheless, opportunities exist for those willing to follow the dictum, do what you can with what you have where you are. Dr. Andrew Amos, member of the RANZCP's section of rural psychiatry, leads a discussion on the realised and potential opportunities for successful research in regional and rural Australia, with a focus on building regional and rural research capacity. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the First Nations and the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters known as Australia, and Māori as Tangata Whenua in Aotearoa. We honour and respect the Elders past and present who weave their wisdom into all realms of life. I'm Andrew Amos, a psychiatrist in Townsville. And today I'm joined by three professors to discuss academic psychiatry in rural locations. Welcome, Matt, Ernest, and AJ. Hi, Andy. Good, Andrew. Hi, Andy. Uh, well, perhaps I could ask Matt first, as the prime mover behind this podcast, to kick off the introductions, uh, followed then by Ernest and AJ. Matt? Yeah, so Matt Coleman, unashamed regional psychiatrist, which makes me a generalist psychiatrist first and foremost. But uh, I'm a clinical director of a couple of services rural and remote services in Western Australia and I also have a role with the Rural Clinical School of Western Australia as a clinical academic and at the moment for my sins a commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission and I think I only got that role because of my academic position and advocacy for rural, remote and regional psychiatry and so I think that's that's why I'm there. Well the rumour is you, you have a special talent for buttonholing politicians in uh, elevators Matt so... It's good, good, good skill to have. Uh, thanks for that. Um, and g'day, Ernest. Hi, Andy. So I'm a retired psychiatrist, have been a clinician through my career, an academic for part of that, and in a sense, an accidental researcher. I've spent most of the last 35 years in tropical North Australia, and before that, uh, in the Pacific. I have a, an academic position with JCU. But I've never held an academic position in a department of psychiatry. It's always been with public health. So my background is in both adult and child psychiatry, cross-cultural psychiatry, all the training for which I did in the United States, and in public health with the University of Queensland and now with JCU. You're now branching out into being a published author and creative writing as well. Yeah, historical fiction and history. Thank you, Ernest. And AJ, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Andrew. I'm AJ Macharuthu. I'm a specialist international medical graduate from the United Kingdom and as well as India. I moved uh, from west of Scotland three years ago to Keynes and uh, through the specialist pathway. I'm an old age psychiatrist by trade, but have specialized in uh, consultation lies in psychiatry for older persons, specifically for the last decade. And I do wear a few more hats of being the ECT director and as well as the chief training supervisor for a large complement of training scheme in Keynes of 33 and also an academic with the James Cook University. 
It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So you've, you've taken over as professor of psychiatry. Yes, uh, lovely. Associate professor of psychiatry. <laughs> oh, an important important qualification. Thank you, uh, AJ. All right, look, uh, thanks for coming on to talk about academic psychiatry in rural locations and rural and regional. Um, I thought a good motto, actually, for this discussion would be Teddy Roosevelt's mantra for action, that you should do what you can with what you have where you are. I think it's a great uh, way to approach regional and rural psychiatry in general and research, perhaps particularly. I wanted to start off by discussing the motivations for research. Why do research and particularly what are our motivations for doing research and being involved in the academic endeavour in rural and regional Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific? I was going to start off by saying largely because research that we all read and are informed by is largely predicated on metropolitan populations and therefore metropolitan contexts. And um, one of the key differences in rural, regional and remote Australia is the context is significantly different, even different within that um, broad categorisation of populations. You know, the, the difference between Warrnambool to far north Queensland or far northwestern Australia is so dramatically different that uh, it requires bespoke research and understanding of those populations, both from an epidemiological perspective, but also in a needs and service perspective. So it's sort of the heterogeneity of broadly thinking of rural communities warrants it. In my books, the difficulty is is that you've never got the economies of scale that you have in, in large metropolitan areas where you can do large clinical trials. And so we get sometimes pushed off to the side, but the richness in particularly in qualitative research and understanding the context enables the generalizability of rural research, I think, that can also inform metropolitan academic psychiatry. So it's a rich tapestry of research. That's where I'd launch in that response, Andy. I'll let Ernest say something. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, look, I couldn't agree more. And of course, uh, Ernest covers another different set of uh, constraints. And, and I wonder whether Necessity can be the mother of invention. When you have to do more with less, you will sometimes come up with things that can then, as you say, be taken back to the metro area. So, Ernest, I guess you've seen quite different contexts than even rural and remote Australia. That's correct. But following on from what Matt was saying, I mean, the driver for research, other than as a stepping stone, is curiosity. And even though I've had periods where I've been doing a fair amount of research, I've fundamentally always been a clinician. And the driver for doing research, uh, for me, has always been trying to make sense of the issues and uh, matters that came my way as a clinician. To be able to do that really required stepping back in particular ways because the evidence base and the data and what's written about the area that I work in, which is remote Indigenous Australia, certainly when I started was extremely limited and uh, still is. So, you know, to understand, you've got to go out and start digging around to find it yourself. We're fortunately all in a profession which has enormous opportunities in different spaces. And that means that we have the opportunity to be able to move through our career from one area of interest to another and still kind of remain within the paddock, so to speak. It's not like we get stuck on one germ cell line and that's going to be it for the rest of our careers. So I've always thought that uh, I've been lucky to be able to think about doing research about clinical presentations, suicide and self-harm and things like that, and trying to understand that in a social context, to do research that um, 
then thinks about service development in rural and remote settings and to shift from there to think about, you know, the relevance of particular activities like horticulture in uh, in remote communities and how that relates to Indigenous mental health in remote settings. So if you are willing to look around and look broadly, there are so many questions. There's so much to be answered and so little there. It's an exciting space. Again, look, I couldn't agree more. Um, The scientist practitioner model that we try and impart to our registrars, I think, looks at hypothesis testing as being a fundamental part of all medicine, but particularly perhaps driving research. So yes, one of the advantages of being in rural or regional location and remote locations is there's so much that we need to learn that it's very easy to pick up and find useful things from the very beginning. And AJ, I guess you, you have a couple of different roles and you're pursuing a lot of different lines of research. I was particularly interested in how you might foster this scientist practitioner model in, in the registrars that you work with. So you absolutely hit the nail there, saying that the necessity is the mother of invention and as well as innovation, especially with rural and remote settings throwing huge number of challenges. And plus, a huge complement of registrars makes your job easier to execute some of your ideas, research ideas, and innovations. For example, I'll give you a very much tailor-made project for uh, the remote and rural psychiatry regions. We are currently validating a ECG instrument, which is uh, like your Apple Watch. So it's called as a Cardia device, which is FDA approved. And you just put two fingers on this device uh, and it doesn't need any specific training. It's battery operated. So in a remote setting, it's a hot wire. And then uh, it's the versatility of uh, this instrument and almost ranging up to patient safety and better outcomes for uh, some of these long-term patients on psychotropic medications and measuring their QTCs. The cost of this device is just minimum, around $400. And also this innovation could be just not remote and rural-centric, but we could extend to Queensland-wide and Australia-wide. So simple things and simple challenges come out with these innovations. And uh, so I've just given you one example, but there are a number of examples of innovation. And that's COPE, for example, the collaborative and integrated care between uh, geriatrics and CLO persons within a hospital setting. So that has expanded into the community. And also, we are looking at both qualitative and quantitative outcomes. And that led to the clinical innovations of coming up with the first delirium clinic of Australia. And then, so one leads to other. So we start with the quality improvement side of things, but it ends up being a great research and cost-effectiveness model of care. But also, we have come up with uh, these other ideas. Oh, look, I think that the quality improvement angle is a really good one, particularly for registrars and early career psychiatrists. It's a great angle because it makes sense to a clinician, but it very much leads in that direction of asking questions. Once we've identified an area that needs to be improved, how can we improve it? Does the research exist already or do we need to go out and find something else? And I love that example of the um, technological solution to the ECG problem of, you know, going out to a remote community and perhaps not being able to take the, the, all of the equipment that you might usually have out. I've done a bit of work with the Royal Flying Doctor Service myself and they have a similar approach. Some of their solutions have been a little bit jury-rigged, but once you've demonstrated that it can work 800 kilometres from the nearest hospital, you can then expand on that. Okay, look, I think that's a good introduction to the approach that we might take, the scientist-practitioner model being looking for questions and and looking at hypothesis testing. 
I know that each of us have been working on different projects. And Ernest, I know that you've been, for example, developing uh, a number of databases, particularly involved with the Indigenous communities up the north of Queensland, that that's led to some really interesting research recently. I was hoping you might be able to describe how that came about. Well, that's a, a good example of clinical practice leading to research and leading to further opportunities. And it might be interesting to kind of contrast that to something which is driven more directly. When I first came to Far North Queensland, I set up an electronic database and maintained that for uh, 25 years. And so every time I saw a patient, and indeed all of the people who were on the remote team who followed me, it went into this dedicated database, which was husbanded with uh, care and included enormous amount of developmental data, cross-linking with uh, other relatives, files, etc. And in the early 2000s, it was obvious that there were some significant changes in the occurrence of particular problems. And Bruce Ginther and myself chose to then interrogate that database, which in, in a sense is a much more complete database for that population than the existing database that Queensland Health used. And indeed, when the Queensland Health Mental Health Database were introduced, we ran these in parallel. So that's what we did. We were able to go back and look at a database of several thousand people and extract those people with psychotic disorders and then ask questions cross-sectionally that gave us some insight into differences in prevalence between Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, and thinking about how that relates to the mainstream. Context is everything, of course, because the populations that we were examining were ghettoised populations in ex-Doggett communities of North Queensland. And although the data says a lot about them, it doesn't say anything about urban populations or rural populations, but the findings were staggering. Which did demonstrate, though, that there were dramatic differences between Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people from a similarly remote part of the world, which then raises the question, well, what is different between these similarly remote people? It's not about remoteness. Torres Strait Islander people are more remote. What are the other issues that then inform those differences? So in order to do that, we drew on lots of other uh, work to put forward some hypotheses. And we subsequently then did some examination looking at changes over time. And so Bruce Ginther was able to uh, take time off and to look at each of these files over 25 years and for us to look at longitudinal trends in those disorders. And uh, we were then able to record link to a various variety of other databases to the um, General Hospital Database, to the Correction Service Database, the Mortality Database, etc., etc., and then demonstrate certain um, issues that flowed from that. So that really stemmed from clinical practice and it stemmed from having a clinical resource which was set up. I might say when I set it up, I'm not a computer lit person, but I set it up as a FileMaker Pro file in about 1991. And then it was shifted into another database some years later, 
So it has problems, but it has, still has, just an enormous amount of longitudinal data. And that was the story of uh, that particular exercise, which really came out of clinical questions and about having the resources there to be able to ask the question too. Yeah, look, I think it's a great model. There's a similar database, different topic, um, but, but the Adverse Childhood Experience database uh, developed in, in Townsville, which basically has a very detailed look at the early adverse experiences of children that come into the mental health service. And in exactly the same way, you can go back and see, well, what are the associations between, let's say, the age of first onset and then later psychopathology or the length of the adverse experience. And of course, you would expect the longer the longer the abuse or the other adverse experiences, the worse the outcomes and so on. And then what is the impact of different treatments depending on those sorts of early childhood experiences? I spoke with uh, Helen Milroy, who's a colleague of Matt's over in WA a few days ago, and she was talking about some work being done on cultural awareness and and, uh, the skill of talking to different populations. So, Ernest, you've just been talking about some of our remote Indigenous communities. Matt, I I imagine that there are similar sorts of communities over in WA that you've been working with? Definitely been working with Helen, who seems to academic and research machine at the moment and uh, I'm involved in in one of her projects or one of the large programs of work she's doing with Pat Dudgeon and uh, Jill Milroy the Transforming Indigenous Mental Health and Wellbeing project which is really you know, Aboriginal led um, research looking at the issues of cultural safety and cultural security in the bit that I'm involved in, in mainstream services and really trying to identify some novel ways rather than clinicians ticking the mandatory training box that they've done cultural safety training um, of actually trying to identify what are the clinical processes and bits of work that we do in our day-to-day clinical work that relate to cultural safety in a, in a meaningful way. And so we're undertaking some research in this one of the services that I'm the clinical director of and um, using complex mathematical models to find the, the journey of First Nations people through our mainstream services of what activities do our clinicians undertake that constitute or can represent practices that enhance cultural safety and the experience and doing some qualitative work alongside that so that we make sure that we measure the narrative of people's experiences because we know that um, particularly in Western Australia our Aboriginal population are late to present because of the experiences of colonisation and the trauma associated with you know high rates of incarceration and, and, and sadly even in the system we're still using phrases like secure beds and just don't reflect on the experience of people who you know have high rates of incarceration have lots of social issues that are adding to their their mental health burden and then wonder why it is that someone's being admitted to a secure bed why that's quite frightening and it doesn't quite fit we don't get the outcomes and engagement that we need to do so research into real world research using innovative quite sophisticated techniques i think is and doing that in a a regional location, I think, is really quite exciting stuff. And uh, there are many opportunities at clinical academic to, to engage in these sorts of you know, fascinating, interesting projects that hopefully will make a significant difference for, for the people that you know we serve and the communities that we serve. And I think this is where the scientist-practitioner approach for all clinicians is really important because everybody's asking these questions 
and then going to an academic to discuss them. That's how you get really interesting uh, advances. Everybody being on the lookout all the time and then seeing what the most interesting things to emerge are. I might mention, I spoke with uh, Hinamo Elder, a uh, New Zealand-based Maori psychiatrist who has written a book, Aroha, about the Whakatauki, which are Indigenous Maori stories being used for self-reflection and, and uh, self-awareness, which is another good podcast in the Psych Matters series. She made the point, very similar to what you're saying, that many Maori youngsters feel disconnected from their culture. And when they come into contact with something like the justice system, being reintroduced to those older ways of thinking can actually be very helpful to them to give them a sense of identity and the resilience to deal with some fairly difficult circumstances. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at ranzcp.org. I particularly wanted to talk about the networks and other resources that have been found useful by um, this group for pursuing research. That might be in terms of funding, it might be in terms of access and so on. I've already mentioned the Royal Flying Doctor Service, who does a lot of good work in um, remote Australia. Are there other organisations or sources of funding or, or people that the group here would like to mention? Great question, Andy. From my perspective, I think collaborations and research are the key. For expansion and one such collaboration i'm a newbie to the fnq and with the lack of research infrastructure here uh, we were forced to have those collaborations especially with jcu sorry aj i'll just point out fnq is uh, far north queensland it's far not north a queensland. Uh, not, not a rude acronym sorry about that. yes <laughs> far north queensland and uh, uh so the the association with uh, the heart team which is the healthy aging research team uh, helped us with coming up with a great project this project was to validate some of the geriatric depression scales and uh, geriatric anxiety inventory in uh, the Torres Strait Islanders. So this very well-funded half a million project delayed by COVID with the initiation side of things. But the expectation from this project is to expand the service, especially for uh, remote psychiatry for older persons specifically. And as well as uh, the, the main reason being uh, it's very well proved that a younger Torres Strait Islanders have a high incidence and prevalence of dementia and then uh, probably uh, depression and anxiety and other psychiatric comorbidity was uh, never unearthed. So there is a huge scope of service development following up with this study. Yeah, look, it's not exactly the same thing. I think there's actually quite a bit of money going into North Australia, far North Queensland, because it's now been recognised that it's been underfunded for a very long time and it's an area where significant development can happen if the right infrastructure is put in place. There's obviously a lot of space and there's a lot of resources up here that can be developed as long as we support the people who are... I mean, there's already mining companies and so on here. There's a lot of farming and so on. So the Cooperative Research Centre for Developing North Australia covers a big band all the way from Broome across to, to Cairns. And there's um, a lot of work in the, the North Queensland Health Atlas, which is looking at mapping what are the demands for mental health care across North Queensland and what sort of workforce is needed to supply those things? Matt, you and I had a bit of a chat about um, regional training hubs as another potential network or resource that can be used in this type of endeavour. Yeah, so for the last 
really two decades, rural clinical schools have, have branched out and flexed the traditional model of um, medical education, which could only be done in tertiary metropolitan centres and um, have demonstrated and have a good body of evidence behind them now that training medical students in regional areas actually gets really good outcomes in terms of generalist uh, medical training rather than the siloed approach that can often occur in tertiary institutions. And so they've really come to the fore and developed and have some strength and integrity and um, some some history behind them and, and are really expanding now into the postgraduate medical space with a rural generalist pathway. And in particular with um, our college now trying to expand into rural psychiatry training pathways. And so the rural clinical schools and now rebadging themselves looking at the rural hubs in terms of trying to identify pipeline processes for young people moving through medical education and training into now postgraduate specialist training. I think uh, they're institutions with a good track record of being integrated and part of regional communities. They've got the resources and not quite the sandstone features of the you know, and the and the age of the universities in, in capital cities, but at least are now run by for and largely directed on behalf of regional communities and, and so they have the you know, in terms of translating research into real impact, they have the questions, they've got the engaged populations and clinicians to undertake research. And I think for registrars these days who are undertaking their fellowship training, sometimes going from one rotation to the other, you know, we know that it's really difficult for them to undertake scholarly projects, which they have to do in six-month rotations. Research takes a lot longer than that. And I think that there's opportunities with the, the regional training hubs, the rural clinical schools, and a growing body of rural psychiatry academics to be able to undertake important projects that not only tick the box for their training, but have impact at a community level, meaningful, and give trainees the opportunity to really understand what Ernest was talking about, which is that context and that context in a bespoke way, wherever they may be. Yes. Look, Ernest, I I was going to ask you about resources and networks. Of course, you've developed your own Well, um, with, I guess, a little bit of help from others, but you've developed some very impressive uh, networks throughout the Pacific. Yeah, networks in the Pacific aren't funding networks, I might say. But uh, just a couple of cautionary tales for new players on the block in relation to funding. And I don't uh, put myself forward as somebody who has great skill in this. But uh, two experiences which I think should be avoided. The issue of collaboration, of course, is very important, but sometimes too many cooks really does cause chaos. So I was responsible for doing the research and then setting up the Queensland Centre for Mental Health Research 20 years ago, which later segued into the Australasian Centre for Mental Health Research, and I don't even know where that is now. But that was chaos. We had four universities, all of whom had individual agendas, etc., and as well as the Commonwealth and the State and the Royal Flying Doctor, and um, they were all brought together and, uh, you know, I put up my hand as being responsible for that and it was a big mistake. So developing enduring and sensible relationships with collaborators who you know is probably a better way to go. The second thing is that there is a sense that, uh, well, what we'll do is we'll set up a foundation and we'll use the foundation to support research. Well, I did that as well. So I was involved in setting up a foundation which continues in Cairns that supports public health research and now primarily supports a niche area of 
mental health, and I haven't been involved for a long time. But once you set up a foundation, you get driven by the foundation. It becomes your taskmaster, and it has a life of its own. So unless you want to do something on a big scale, then my sense is uh, rethink that option. So then two thoughts which kind of flow from that. One is because most of the research that I've done over many years has been done on very little funding at all. A lot of it has come from projects. So we've done projects in all sorts of areas, from IT through to whatever. And by careful evaluation, that then becomes the basis of developing an evidence base around performance and mental health, things that uh, are peripheral to your usual thinking. And I think that in terms of training, to to have those who are learning the crafts and skills be fluent in what they need to know about evaluating what they're doing gives them an extraordinary basis for research broadly because you've got to have your head around quantitative and qualitative research, developing the relationships and stepping back. The third thing is that much of the research that I've been involved in also depends on goodwill. So we've been running the Creating Futures exercise for two decades now, and it's ongoing, I might say. And one of our relationships there is with Sangath in Goa. And so we've worked very closely with Vikram Patel and people driving the global mental health agenda and have been able to draw them into thinking about what are the ways that we can capacity build around mental health in the low and middle income countries of the Pacific now, our relationship with Sangath has never cost us anything. You know, we've raised a little bit of money to bring people over when we've been running the courses and we've done some online courses, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all been done through goodwill. So, yes, we need to identify where the buckets are, but don't get totally focused on the buckets and be wary of trying to create a bucket that everybody's going to throw a little into that's problematic or creating a bucket that you're going to fill yourself. There are problems there. That's exceptionally validating, Ernest, because I've done my research on an oily rag. And I think uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it's small bites of the elephant that allows you to eat it eventually. And it's building that program of work that has meaning as you go and you pick up things as you go and you pick up partners that you can rely on. And my experience is that as you, you start to do regional research that has some impact regionally and makes a difference, local people start to bank on you as well. And there is that emphasis from the universities in getting an academic position that you need to go big. But um, your sage advice and experience is um, rather reassuring. And I think has somehow it's been the, the way in which at least my academic career, and I never thought I would be in academic psychiatry, ha- has progressed and progressed slowly but uh, ever so smallly and from a, a collegial point of view with my metropolitan colleagues, but seems to actually have more legs in the long run, I think. I think that probably reflects that it's being driven by real needs and, and it's clinically driven. So you're trying to pursue an end goal rather than just create a career in, in academic psychiatry. I wanted to ask whether there are particular hopes for the future, that what people see developing out of their current situation. You already addressed it in, in some sense, but if we are looking at the future with an opt- through an optimistic lens, what do we see? Yeah, you, you need to be optimistic in, uh, in research especially. And in Keynes, uh, but as Ern says, has to be capacity building uh, where funding is a rarity. So 
we have made some progress with regards to having a consultant research group. So getting those like-minded people on board uh, so that enthusing them and motivating each other and, and also creating projects for our trainees and as scholarly projects and also involving them. So that's one way we have addressed uh, some of these in addition to the collaborations, which we have already discussed. I'm always amazed when I visit Cairns. So many people come for the beaches, but they stay because they love the town. So... No, I think it's a good approach. What about Ernest and, and Matt? Well, look, I think I feel a bit of a dinosaur and there are so many bright young things that are circulating around now and um, they have resources and think in ways that uh, I struggle with. I hope that, and a, a lot more of those, of course, are Indigenous and I think we can be proud as a discipline, medicine, that we've been able to get the number of Indigenous students going through the system up much more than our other disciplines. I really hope that attention is given to encouraging people to understand the therapeutic importance of relationships and the therapeutic importance of us and our presence rather than simply the practices that we bring along and that we strive to figure out ways in which we're able to demonstrate the importance of those issues and some of the points that Matt was making relate to this. I think those things are very critical and as a profession I think we do ourselves a disservice if we retreat to what uh, I did my training at Washington University in St. Louis which was often talked about as the citadel of precise diagnosis and of course a diagnosis is simply prescriptive tells you what you can do it's not explanatory and I think that we need to emphasize the importance of explanation which gets back to the point that was being made about narrative and I think young things will get it. I hear hidden there the uh, the desire for better formulation which is something that uh, you can't get three psychiatrists in a room without. Hey (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, totally well, Matt, you had the first word and it seems appropriate you might have the last last word. So thanks for the question, Andrew. I, I largely practice and come from a social justice background when I'm thinking of both my work and uh, clinically and also academically. And um, I'm, I'm optimistic that there seems to be some backing finally from governments and from community to understand the injustices and the, and the disadvantage that uh, rural and remote communities face. And so with that backing, I'm, I'm hopeful that we develop a sense of agency in rural, remote and regional communities. And with that agency comes the capacity building that AJ was talking about to enable people who live, work and train in regional areas to do their own research for their own communities and and good outcomes. So, And in that context, there are so many opportunities from a research perspective and an academic perspective beyond just doing the research, the teaching, the commitment to serving the community that I'm very optimistic for the future. And I think that anyone that's in Verticomas adventurous and looking for opportunities, there's plenty of opportunities in, in regional Australia and other parts of the world. And so it's a good note to um, end on, I hope. Oh, indeed. Look, uh, I think if if you see what has happened in the last 10 years, if we project forward that trajectory for another 10 years, the infrastructure, the frameworks and the people will be uh, exponentially developing. All right. Uh, look, uh, thanks very much to the three professors, uh, Coleman, Hunter and Machiruthu, for joining me today to discuss 
Research in Academic Psychiatry in Rural Remote Australia, and to David, Joe Rose and Nishta on the control deck. That's it for this episode of Psych Matters. So thanks for listening and see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.